The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. And she also sits on the advisory board of the State of California Office of Privacy Protection. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV and lots of shows, Dateline, CNN, NBC, 48 Hours, ABC News, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, and she even had her own 90-minute PBS television special called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. So to learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Evening, Mari. Who's your guest? Oh, we are so lucky. I don't know if you remember, Lloyd, or those of you who are listening, but we have had wonderful people come on our show from the Center for Democracy and Technology. And we are thrilled again to now have Ari Schwartz, who is the deputy director of the Center for Democracy and Technology in Washington, D.C. He is a privacy and anti-spyware expert. He is the deputy director, and I had the privilege of meeting him. I think it must have been maybe five years or more ago when I was testifying in Congress, and he was there, and he brought me back to his office. A super nice guy and brilliant, and we are so thrilled that he is there working on these privacy issues. Ari Schwartz, works. his work focuses on increasing individual control over personal and public information. He promotes privacy protection in the digital age and expanding access to government information on the Internet. Ari Schwartz regularly testifies in Congress. I've read many of his testimonies. And he also testifies before the executive branch and those agencies on, on issues of privacy as well. Mr. Schwartz also leads the Anti-Spyware Coalition, which the acronym is ASC which comprises anti-spyware software companies, academics, and public interest groups and research groups dedicated to defeating spyware. We're going to learn about what he means by spyware. In 2006, Ari won the RSA Award for Excellence in Public Policy for for his work building the Anti-Spyware Coalition and other efforts against spyware. He was also named one of the top five influential IT security thinkers of 2007 by Secure Computing Magazine. So that's really exciting. We're so glad to have him. And you can learn more about him and all the great work that the Center for Democracy and Technology does at cdt.org. And thank you, Ari, for joining us all the way from Washington, D.C. It's a pleasure to be here, Mari. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for all the great work you do. Now, let's let's get started. You have so many areas that are that you are really an expert at. But let's talk about privacy and commercial privacy. 
it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but how would you define commercial privacy? Well, really, when we talk about privacy, we're, we focus on the control, the individual's ability to control information about themselves. We, we focus a lot on how in the security space about what happens, how information is protected, and how you make sure that the right people have the right information. But in the, in, in the privacy space, what, what we're really talking about is how is information used behind the scenes, and how can individuals really have control over that, make decisions that, that, uh, where they can empower, be empowered themselves and really have some knowledge, uh, equal, equal footing in the transaction with a, with a company. I know. You talk a lot about there's a, a lack of transparency on the Internet, right, where we don't really know what's happening and we don't have much control over information, how our information is shared or how it's used if there's no transparency. So that's a huge issue. Well, that is, I mean, the, the, the transparency is, is, a, is a big part of this, is how do we, how can someone uh, engage in a transaction where when a lot is no, known about them and, and about how these systems work, but the person that's interacting in the transaction doesn't understand that. Exactly. That much more complex. You know, we've read recently about Facebook having a major backlash against its Beacon program. And I know here we are sitting at the university campus, and we know that there are a lot of students and, you know, adults who use Facebook and some of the other networking sites. So please explain what happened, and why do you think this product actually did cause so much concern? Well, I think that, the, that a lot of the things that uh, Facebook was trying to do really came down to turning over information that individuals had about other people. So in, in the, the way that the Facebook beacon w- was supposed to work, you were going to tell uh, your y- y- people would buy something on a website. So you'd buy something on uh, one, of the, one of the partners is Blockbuster. So you go and you buy something on Blockbuster. That information about the fact that you bought something would be shared with your Colleagues, unless I mean, with your with your friends on on my on uh, Facebook, unless you actively opted out of that. And the problem with that was, um, uh, and, and the problem with that that was that a lot of people didn't realize what was happening, and they just clicked through. They they would buy something, and it turned out this came up just before Christmas, and a lot of people found out what their Christmas gifts were going to be okay. before uh, before that happened, and people were outraged about that, and rightly so. Um, but the interesting thing is these are the types that's the type of information sharing that goes on all the time between companies behind the scenes um, and it was really only because this was out there in the public that people could actually see that the information was being uh, about what the person was buying was was going to uh, to their friends and not to other companies that might be interested um, that it really raised those kinds of concerns um, and it was that kind of transparency that we don't usually get that raised the concerns. And that's exactly why when we talk about the, when we first started talking about this a few minutes ago, we were talking about transparency um, as a key point here. Because if you have that kind of transparency, uh, you do raise a lot more. A lot more of the issues are out in the open. It doesn't solve every problem, but it certainly uh, begins to start to raise the problems in new kinds of ways. You know, I read in the paper that that the people who created this beacon on. Facebook that created this this new thing that they were going to do to to beacon out what people were uh, anything new that changed on their on their site or anything that they did differently would be sent to other friends. Um, I read that they thought that that wasn't going to be a problem because people who go on Facebook share so much information about themselves with friends that they thought that there was no issue of privacy. So even though we think of young people as not 
really caring about privacy. In effect, they really do, don't they? Uh, they, you know, I think that they re- they do, and they, I mean, they were outraged by it. And you, this is the second time actually there's been something on Facebook where the young users have really uh, stood up and rebelled against Facebook on on a, on a privacy issue like this. Um, but uh, and I and I had a conversation with uh, someone at uh, Pew Internet, the Pew Internet Project, Susanna Fox, who's the director of research there, and and she's been doing these studies on different different views on privacy um, in g- different generations, and pri- younger people always poll lower than older people do in terms of privacy. And at first, I think when she first started doing this polling, her viewpoint was um, that uh, there was actually was a generational gap. Now um, that, that she's been doing it for a while, I think she's shown that that generational gap has actually stayed steady over time, which means that um, as people get older, they start to care more about privacy. And that's where the gap really comes in, is as you start to learn more about um, how your information can be used against you, you care about privacy. And, and there's some, I think there's some uh, uh, argument that could be made, and I think that uh, you know, we'll have to see how this plays out, but I, I would make the argument that the people today who are using Facebook, the young people today that are using, that have these privacy concerns, are, are, are going to actually end up caring more about privacy than the, the older generations do today. It just takes some time to get that kind of knowledge and, and, and to care about it more. I, I think you're exactly right. I think that when when these young people, and you know, I have kids that are in that age group, you know, one is 21 and one is 28, and, and I know that they have used this networking sites, and I know that they grew up with the computer as opposed to me. You know, I didn't really learn how to use the computer until I was an adult and then started using it for business. But I think what happens is is that because it's not transparent, they don't realize that everything that they put up is going to be seen by a potential employer, for example, who could do a search, right? And I think you're right that once they find out about the privacy violations that occur to them, they're going to be more outraged. But they don't get it. You know, they don't get it. And actually, and the storage over time as well. I think people that write something when they're 15 and then it comes back and it's still online when they're 25 feel a little bit different about it. Um, and I think that that, is, that will affect people who are writing things now that are 15 and 10 years from now. Um, and, and maybe if they're asked the question when they're 19, they may not care about so much about privacy. When they're asked the question when they're 29, maybe they will care more about privacy. Yeah, we, we recently interviewed Daniel Solove about his new book, The, Rep- the Future of Reputation. And yes, that's exactly, do you read it? Oh, yes. it's a great book. And we had a wonderful interview with him. And um, it, it's exactly what you're talking about. Because what happens... That now that they don't recognize is going to total how it can proliferate on the internet, and what they might say that somebody else picks up could destroy them, and so I think you know it's it's a scary time. I think it's a real scary time. Well, it is. I mean, I, I, I don't mean to be negative about the internet. Uh, I mean, we think that it's a great resource. It's great for it has this great democratic potential. That's why we care. That's why you know we work at the center for democracy. I work at the center for democracy and technology, and we focus on do all these e-government and e-democracy things as well, but um, but you do have to face that, the potential downsides of how the technology could be used and try and uh, build it to the potential. Exactly. No, I'm not putting it down either. I use the Internet all the time. I love it for research. I absolutely think it's wonderful, but there is that dark side that since we're in the wild west of the Internet, you know, we haven't dealt with all of those challenging issues, and, and you're on the forefront doing that. Exactly. So thank, thank you. you. <laughs> So anyway, a lot also has been written about the concerns over Google's privacy practices and what they may do in the future. 
tell us about your concerns and and what do you think they need to do to entrust ensure trust in us and uh, you know in the user in the long term. Well, I think Google's problem is not. I mean, it's hard to, to look at one individual product that they have and say uh, there's the problem with what Google's doing. Um, if you look at um, their their individual products. They um, they each have some privacy issues. Some cases they're the best they they engaging in the best practices in the industry. But if you start to look at them across the different products and start to see all of the information that they're collecting, and they I mean they say their goal is to collect all the world's information and make it searchable and easily findable, which is a noble goal. Um, but there you still have that a disconnect of well how do we protect privacy if we're going to we're going to go about doing that and they're still focused seem to be focusing on kind of one product at a time rather than looking at this global picture and saying you know what should the rules be for the use of this information now to their to their credit i mean they've supported general privacy legislation i think that um uh that will help move us along there but i think you know google also needs to take a leadership role in saying you know in some cases we're going to put things back in the control of users and let them make those decisions so what do you think are the, the most disconcerting things that, that Google is doing? Because I think a lot of people who are listening here, whether they're business people driving by or students or, or even, you know, Lloyd or me who's sitting here, we use Google all the time and we're not necessarily, you know, in sync with all of the real uh, challenges that, that we might be facing using Google. Give us well, some I mean, examples. It's, it, you know, I think that it's, uh, it's going to be different for different people and, and uh um, they're out, they have a ton of products now, so I mean you can think of, look, think of their their desktop search, which searches through all of your um, all of your information on your desktop, and then uh, um, makes it available to you. A great product for people that want to find things more easily on their desktop. Um, and now the in fact the operating system manufacturers have had to compete with that and build better searches on the desktop themselves. Um, but so that's good because it yeah. creates competition. Yeah. Absolutely. So it's been a it's been a revolution that way. But if you share your computer with someone, right, right, and you have a separate caching protocol on the computer that the that the other person doesn't necessarily know about, um, then that information you know you, that you're making that information available, and and that, that the other person could set up the the Google the desktop search. Right. Right. So. And and it, it goes through a lot of different kinds of information that people may not want to make available to someone else that they share their their computer with, and and um, so uh, y- you know you have to go through all the right security protocols to make sure that you're sharing your computer securely and that you know what's on the computer, what the other person has on the computer. So um, that's just one example, um, but I think it's one that kind of shows well. Here's one product, right? So then. You, you multiply that over all these other products that have searchability issues. You have, uh, you know, in, um, it, for example, in um, uh, their their lo- location products and their their mapping products, they're taking pictures. Oh of yeah, that's scary. On the streets, right? And and so there are people, and they have an opt out process for getting people getting out of the um, the process. And we've worked with them on trying to make that a better process so the people if they see their picture they can get it removed we also worked with them on uh trying to make sure that uh battered women's shelters weren't showing up exactly um in that in those pictures and um because uh, some of them end up in databases even if they're not in the yellow in the in the white pages right. or they have unlisted numbers sometimes they'll still show up in address listings so um and they're not interested in opt-in they're only interested in opt-out well, in that case, I mean, in terms of taking your picture down, they're interested. It's only an opt-out, yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, and then you so you multiply, and again, the, you go through all these different products, and they all have different components. And then on top of it, the new 
um, acquisition, you know, they paid $3 billion for this company, DoubleClick, right. um, which is a, a network advertiser, which on its own had, had, had built up pretty good privacy practices over time. But you start to tie those to um, the, the practices of um, the, uh, th- that, that Google's doing in terms of its advertising on its search, and it, um, you start to, you, you have every, Google's now looking at everything that you searched on and all of the pages that advertise that you've been to on the web. So they are, you know, New York Times or, uh, you know, all these other sites that have, that use DoubleClick as, as a one um, means of placing ads on the site, get to collect information, and then since Google now owns that, all that gets tied together. So they know where you've searched and a lot of where you've been online. So uh, I think that gets to be, then they can build more of a portrait on individuals and, and um, that they can use for advertising purposes. Um, that gets to be scary, too. Now, I'm, I'm building up a scenario here. They just haven't said what they're going to do. Right, to but they have the privacy. capability. But they have this capability out there. And, so, and then all those other products that I mentioned before, you imagine them all tying into this larger issue of them knowing everywhere you've been online and all that information that feeds in, and if they can tie all that information together, um, and you have to use them because they're the best in um, certain ways, then it raises a lot of concerns. Now, I think they can mitigate these concerns and give people real controls, um, but we haven't seen them do it yet where they're really giving the control to the user and letting the user make decisions um, and deciding what they want to do rather than Google making setting a default standard. We're speaking with Ari Schwartz, who is the Deputy Director of the Center for Democracy and Technology. And he's testified in Congress, and he's very adept at all issues of privacy. You know, when you talk about users and consumers having control and having choices and being able to make those choices, you have to be informed to make choices. Ari, a lot of people can use the Internet, and they can use their programs, they can use Word, they can use Microsoft Office or whatever they use, and, and that's all they can do because they're out working in another job. You know what I mean? Yeah, they, yeah. And, and I know even for myself, you know, I work very hard as an attorney and a mediator and doing all the things that I try and learn, yet I'm not a, a techie freak. I know how to do my programs, and I know enough to be dangerous probably with security features and privacy features but i'm probably more astute about it than a lot of people and even i don't get how to do all these things it's not easy yeah we, we struggle with this all the time and it, i mean you know on, 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 we talk about opt-in and opt-out too and and certainly an opt-in in most cases is better than an opt-out but there are we've seen bad opt-ins too where they just convince people to click OK, right? Um, right, because they don't know the difference. They don't know the yeah, right. So it's uh, they're not necessarily um, baiting you into doing it, but it, I mean, it seems like that's what you're supposed to do. So um, the the what so what we've um, uh, there have been you know good examples out there though, and I think you know the best example of uh, an op good opt out has been the do not call list. Right. Everyone right. understood, right? You don't want telemarketing calls. Put your phone number on this list. Right. Well, that's pretty easy because all you had to do is really phone in or go online, and it was a very simple process. But some of these other um, processes of, like, when I go into Microsoft and I want to deal with my security levels, for example, you know what I'm talking about when you set your security Absolutely. levels? No, it's way too, that's it's so confusing. Yeah. It's so, you know, and, and I think I'm a good example of it because if I can't do it, how can everybody else do it, you know? No, that's right, and I think that the, the, that... Um, that 
It should you know, be we've, easy. We've talked to Microsoft about improving that, and I think that they're open to the idea of uh, improving those settings and trying to make them easier. But, it, you know, we're still not there yet, you know, and, and um, you know, I have concerns about uh, when you talk about health privacy, some of those issues. Oh, yeah, just, we're going to get to those. Yeah, yeah, just, just, <laughs> just taking, you know, just taking the, the models that we have today for saying okay or cancel as being your two choices, right? Right. And then right. Uh, putting that in the health world where you get service, is that okay? You, you know, to get service, we're going to collect all your information and market, market based on all your health information. Oh, is that okay or do you want to cancel your service? Oh, yeah. Right? That's the choice? You know, that's not a real choice. Then, no. Even, though, even if it's a, you, you're saying it's an opt-in, really it's not a, a choice. So we have to um, be able to, we have to do a better job of doing research and figuring out better opt-ins and better controls on these kinds of things. And we've seen, you know, this company we, we, we've worked with, ask.com, uh, has put out, um, you know, some controls on their search engine. That's just an, it's an easy on and off button. Now, it's not perfect, but um, I think that it's moving in the right direction there where you can say, don't collect my searches. Right, right. And why can't Google do that? Why can't Yahoo And not do only that? don't collect so. it, but if you if you have it there for a certain period of time, you know, get rid of it immediately. Yeah. You know, after after five days or after whatever, how many days? They do days? it in a few, in a several hours. Right, right. Role, I noticed that with the yes, but there are other search yeah. engines that keep it for thirty days or more, right? Right. Well, I mean, the the, the standard right now is tied to tied to all of the information that they get about you, in a cookie number and a um, IP address uh, for uh, thirteen to eighteen months. Oh my goodness, that long! Yeah, so some of them are most most of them keep it thir- thirteen months now. Uh, Microsoft and Google are at eighteen months. And what do they and then, need and to then do actually, that for? Microsoft gets rid of your IP address after that point, and then Google only strips out part of the IP address, which is what the Euro- European Union recently uh, raised some concerns over. So. so, what is the reason that they keep it so long? Well, they want to do um, testing on uh, you know what. Um, there's two reasons. One is sort of anti-fraud measures, which I don't think they need it quite that long to do anti-fraud measures. Right, right. But uh, they do need it for some period of time to figure out, make sure that people aren't just uh, clicking on uh, ads just to make money for themselves, right. or to uh, um, drive business. You know, make make other people make their competitors pay uh, money, um, and for other reasons, other fraud reasons. Um, but then there's also the concern about um, a basic concern about. Um, uh, Terrorism or something? Well, no, it's it's more um, trying to figure out patterns so that they can help um, improve the search itself. Uh-huh. So they want to do a comparison. And, and so the people that keep it for 13 months say we need a year period of time that allows us to do a um, Well, quarterly. why don't they make it anonymous? A if they're looking comparison. for trends, you know. Well, but it's sort of a, well, this is what people do over time, so we, we lump what individual people are doing together. And after that period of time, we can anonymize them them if we need to. Um, but, uh, I mean, it's a question. I, I mean, again, I don't think that 13 months, I think it should be up to the consumer to make the decision whether they want to be part of that or not. Right. I mean, I think there are ways to, to, to get, put it into the user's control. And, you know, I think Ask has done a good job of that. Um, right. But, uh, um, you know, this... You know, I question why you need it for 18 months. 13 months, I, they want to do a year-to-year comparison, right? They want to do January to January, um, so they get to see that. Um, 18 months, I don't understand why you need that, what, what those extra five months buy you that, that, that 13 months didn't get you. 
Well, would it be possible to anonymize it and just make it a, a, a unique number that has nothing to do with you, with your IP address? Couldn't they just anonymize just to look at, for purpose of testing and looking at trends? Well, they did, they, you know, AOL does this. Right. And so, and, and, and then it, actually in the AOL, there was a case where the AOL, you'll, you'll remember this, Mari, where yeah. AOL posted uh, online the search records of everyone with this new ID number that they just made up. Which right, is, and then uh, the New York Times could go and figure out exactly who it was. Based on the search <laughs> right. search itself, right? Right, so, right. The, um, the veterinarian that was, you know, a block away. And, right. Yeah, I know. I so remember. it doesn't really help <laughs> right. that much to have the, um, to say uh, that we're going to, Pull out this this number and make it right. some some random ID. Right. It, it would it, it means more just to just keep the search terms. You know, just get rid of that other data and just keep the search terms not tied to any one person. Um, but then that doesn't help with well, what do what do individuals do? Um, so for in terms of searching and improving that. So I think there are um, you know we'd rather have people opt into that. I think a lot of people would say, yeah, I want my stuff personalized. I want better searches, and therefore I want this this personalized. Yeah, I want to be able to block it when I don't want you to use it, but I think there's a whole bunch of reasons why you might want to, I want you to keep this information so you know that when I type Paris Hilton in, I'm looking for the hotel in Paris and not right. the actress or whatever she is. Right. And, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, instead of, uh, you know, whereas someone else, I mean, that's not what you're going to get today if that's the first thing you type in. Exactly. So, yeah. um, and so people might like that about it, but then that's your decision to make that to choose for that. That you say that you want to personalize that way, and that you want some searches kept and some not, um, and put that in the control of the user. Now, tell me something with with regard to gathering this information and sharing this information for Homeland Security, for example. How does that enter into it? Is uh, is the government asking them to retain it for a certain period of time so that they can do some searches, or do they? Are they getting warrants for specific person? There was persons there was one case that we know about, which is this department where the Department of Justice asked for information. It was actually for a um, a law that that was considered unconstitutional by the um, Supreme Court, and that the Department of Justice was fighting it, um, and they wanted to find out the searches that people do, um, and so they asked. Uh, all of the search companies to turn over information, and actually Google fought that subpoena. Right, I remember that. Right, so and then, and then we were very, you know, we 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 actually said, we, you know, we were really uh, pleased to see Google do that. Um, so uh, we uh, we uh, applauded them to, for that. And uh, um, uh, the, the 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 problem is, in most cases, they it's secret information. I mean, they they tell them that they can't. If it's a it's a matter of uh, national security, they can't tell us um, if. Who, to turn over the information. Usually, though, they would go to the ISP. They might get information from some someone, one of the search companies, or um, but but really, they're probably going to go um, to try and find people that are posting things online, or um, uh, and work with them to try and find the information out through the ISPs, um, and then get the information and set up at the ISP and collect all the data moving forward about an individual, rather than working with the search company for the long term. Oh, I see. You, yeah. You see what I mean? Yeah. It's even hard to get things from the ISP because I've had victims of uh, cyber identity theft who have had tremendous problems uh, getting stuff taken down that really wasn't theirs or, you know what I mean, websites that someone right. would put up about them, that it was not them and it was an identity theft. It was maybe for, you know, for revenge or for some reason like that or or maybe put up something on a social networking site to embarrass them? Well, it's a lot easier for uh, for law enforcement with a lawful 
you know, criminal subpoena to right. uh, to, to get it than it is for in a civil case. Um, right. So, um, you know, I don't I don't feel too bad for the for law enforcement in that case, but I do, you know, I do understand that issue, and we you know we've had the same thing in in spyware cases and I, and identity theft cases that we've seen, where um, you know the information is just not getting taken down. So. Right, right, it's hard. So anyway, you you've been asking at least the Center for Democracy and Technology has been asking for a do not track list. How would that work? I mean, if it would be like the do not call us, how, how, how do you explain that that would really work? Well, I mean, again, you know, this is about getting at the simplicity. How do we make the opt- these choices easier? And, you know, we, we worked with a bunch of other companies, including uh, Privacy Rights Clearinghouse and uh, Consumer Action, some others in uh, California, who, uh, uh, Privacy Rights uh, Clearinghouse, uh, World Privacy Forum. The one, right. uh, the one who's taking the lead on a pandemic, right. uh-huh. and um, and they really uh, the, the idea is we you know we're thinking together how can we make this uh, a consumer's choice really work, right? And what has worked in the past? Well, the do not call war- list has worked, yeah. and the question is, well, why has it worked? Well, because it's easy to understand, right? And it's easy to use, right? Right? Those are the two things that so we tried to say, and it's that from a central place that you can trust the government, right? Um, the Federal Trade Commission, right? Uh, right. So we try to figure out well how do we build something that would be like that for the online space. Right. And w- what we said was, well, um, we don't want people to turn over, have to turn their personal information over to the FTC and have it stored there in a central database. Instead, we'll have the marketers uh, and the network advertisers turn over their servers that are going to be doing the tracking. So they have to identify the tracking servers um, that where, you, where you're doing tracking for marketing purposes um, by a third party. And then the consumer can download that list and block it in their browser. Oh, but it could be it could be literally thousands, right? Right, but <laughs> if, again, again, I mean, that isn't simple, then, is it? Or what? It, it, well, it, it could be if you, you'd need the browser manufacturers and the anti-spyware companies to build tools to make it happen seamlessly. Oh, because so you just like copy and paste in or something? Where you just press a button, basically. Oh. It's on the front of the browser. Do not track. It's on. Do you, you press it. It's off. Oh, that's a good idea. So you can make the decision yourself. That it, it downloads. It keeps current. And that's, I mean, that's, what the, that's what antivirus software does today. Right. 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 So uh-huh. um, it does it based on definitions of what, what certain programs look like instead of, you know, based on URLs. But, um, you know, we would like to see instead of, you know, blocking these pages, Bringing in the cookie and then just automatically deleting it, or the other kinds of tracking devi- tracking technologies. So that's that's the way we envision it working. Um, is it, you, you know I think that there are a lot of ways that you could come up with easy easy opt outs that you could call do not track list. Um, we're not certainly not tied to one way to do it, but I think the idea was just to come up with something that's easy and flexible that you know not tied to a new technology um, and uh, that someone can trust and. and you know, there's there are these there are ways right now where people can down, download uh, opt out cookies from a bunch of places. The problem with them is that um, they're hard to find. That they they delete over a period of time, which is problematic. Um, and you don't know. There's no transparency to it. You don't right. know if it's on or off or um, how that works. So. Right, right. Now, do, we don't need legislation for this. Do we need like an edict by the Federal Trade Commission, who's in charge of deceptive practices? No, you probably would need legislation oh, would to, make, need it, to okay. make that go forward, and that's yeah. uh, one of the things that would hold it up. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So, um, has there been any legislation that's been introduced given this uh, format that you've got? No, we've been contacted by a number of uh, members of Congress, and I think uh, you know we're interested in working with them. 
Uh, I think we're also interested in working with the browser companies are to try and build this type of functionality. And today, they all have different kinds of yeah. um, cookie blocking, cookie control technologies. Um, but if you, you know, if you could build this in and get the good companies to voluntarily do it, then you can start to say, well. Look, if uh, they can do it, everybody can do it. Right, and it should be required. Then you know these companies that go, that go around and try and skirt around the um, protocols that are built. You know, there are these cookie protocols that are built to try and make it so that people have a little bit more control today. And people are skirting around those tech, those 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 are really the bad guys. You yeah, know, yeah. so we need to try and f- figure out ways to go about reining them in. So you think that if you can get these companies to get in and, and put it together, then they will help support. A, a legislation, you can get something passed. Well, I mean, you know, let's hope they could do. We can, we can uh, move it so that uh, it's, it's, it, it's working in a way that works for their business as well, right? And that 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 um, they can uh, that they can build it that it works for them, right. and then and it happens quickly, right? right? So they're not they're not having a FTC mandate on how they build their technology, but right. um, you know, you get something in place, and then it's something that they can live with. That would be the best possible scenario. And then you could say, well, you know, how do we go after the bad guys? We need to uh, make a rule that you have to uh, you have to do this. Right, so. right. Because the good guys will, will follow suit, but the bad guys won't. Right. Well, talking about bad guys, let's talk about the insidious spyware. Now, there's, I think a lot of people don't realize that there's spyware by the real bad, bad, bad guys. And then there's commercial spyware. Could you explain what that difference is, you know, because the hacker spyware stuff? You know the key loggers, and and then the spyware that we get all the time through advertising and adware. Right. So um, yeah, so there's two. There, there, I think you're right in in, in clearing, clarifying that there are two different kinds. So there are these, uh, the kind of uh, um, you know, this commercial spyware, which is um, really trying to um, uh, to send ads and to bombard people. It, sometimes it collects a lot of information about individuals, but it might not. It might just be resident on your computer, looking at what you're doing, making decisions about what you're doing. So it gives you pop-up ads based on what you do. Um, and you, you might not know that it's there. Right. Um, and uh, the good news on that kind of spyware is um, it, it seems like we're winning the battle um, on, on that kind of spyware. If you look at the cons- consumer report studies over the past two years, um, the, the, the kinds of adware uh, kinds of spyware that we've seen in the past has declined, and the damages from uh, that that um, uh, kind of spyware has been cut in half. I mean, it was $3 billion, so it was a lot <laughs> before, right. Um, right. and it's been cut in half. So we're, I think we're, we're making uh, substantial progress on that kind of spyware. Now, the, the well, spy- we also have some laws, too. So the Federal Trade Commission has, has actually taken some actions in that area, too, haven't they? Right. So we uh, one thing that we tried to point out at CDT was, you know, we have existing laws that cover this stuff. Right, right. You know, forget about passing new laws. I mean, enforce have, the ones we've got. Yeah, we have. I mean, we're we're happy to raise the penalties and pass new laws to raise penalties on these these old laws. But you know, we've got ones on the books, and you know what? They they have been enforcing them. The FTC has been enforcing them. The uh, state AGs have been very active in this area. Um, you know, now Governor uh, Spitzer brought some of the first cases in this space uh, from New York. Um, right. We've seen a lot of cases in from Washington State. Um, where um, you know they've gone after uh, the, the the real bad guys here and gotten them to uh, clean up their acts or shut down altogether, and right. um, we've uh, had a lot of success there because of the enforcement actions, because of the anti-spyware technology that's been put out there, yeah. um, and um, because of uh, the the uh, talking to the advertisers. I mean, one thing that uh, 
um, Attorney General Cuomo did in, in New York now and started under Spitzer and went through to Cuomo when he started, was he uh, settled some cases with um, advertisers who uh, were uh, of big-name companies um, that, that were working with um, the, uh, some of the adware companies. So they were... Advertising on companies that you know they sh- that were t- engaging in bad practices, um, and they were held liable themselves. They right. settled out of court, but um, you know I think that you get the sense that there was some action in that case. And the FTC has written letters to some of the advertisers of adware companies, and it really has dried up the market quite a bit in that space. Yeah, and a lot of that's due to you. I know I remember your testimony in 2005 talking about what what needs to be done and how this was insidious and not transparent and and really a deceptive practice. Right, and so we, we, we try to make that clear, and I think that message got through to the FTC and to the uh, to the state AGs, and uh, we've we've done a... Um, We've had a real turnaround there, and, and it's not 100%. We're not 100% there yet, but I think um, we see, we've seen progress, and that progress continues. And now, there is the other this, kind of spyware, though. Right, but let me go back. Yeah. And, and also, I just want to mention, because you've, you've put together this anti-spyware coalition that also, I think, had developed best practices, right? Right. And, and so that has had a great deal of influence again. Well, uh, we've we've done a, a number of things within the anti-spyware coalition. One thing that we did was finally to come up with a definition for spyware because everyone has had their own definitions for spyware, uh, and we tried to come up with a unified definition for spyware. So and give it to us. <laughs> well, uh, I, I actually don't have it it's sitting in front of me, <laughs> but uh, and the basic idea is that it takes away user control, the software um, and other technologies that take away user control um, and uh, uh, y- y- usurp their privacy. Or um, um, and uh, don't uninstall. Right. Those are the main components of the definition. So, um, and the FTC sort of uh, mirrored some of most of that in their viewpoints on what kind of cases they'll bring. Right. So I think that we did sort of set something out there that, that has been used, and then from there we came up with a risk model where where anti-spyware companies could look at a piece of software and say, is this spyware by the anti-spyware coalition standards? Um, yes or no, and, and give it a score. Based mm-hmm. on that, now different companies are going to rate it higher or lower, but you know it's a healthy marketplace out there for anti-spyware technologies right. right now. In fact, in some ways, I mean, some of the problem is there's too many players out there. Yet you really have to look at the ratings to know uh, that are out there to know which ones are the better uh, performers. We're speaking uh, with Ari Schwartz, who is the deputy director for the Center for Democracy and Technology. And he is talking to us now about spyware and privacy. So, you know, there's a lot of free software, right? Like I have SpyBot, which is free. Is that SpyBot and AdAware, you know, are two yeah, free I programs. Yeah, I use those. I mean, is, am I using the right ones? Should I look? Can it, will you, If I go to your website, will it tell me which are the best ones? Well, we, we just list the members, and both of those companies are members yeah. um, uh, of the Anti-Spyware Coalition. Um, we don't do rankings. I would suggest going to uh, Consumer Reports, Wall Street Journal, CNET, the places that you trust, PC right. Magazine, places you trust to do reviews to, and look up their anti-spyware uh, results and, and go with that because, uh, um, uh, you know, they're actually doing testing, whereas, uh, um, right. you know, we try and work with all the companies. I don't want to oh, sponsor know, some know, over but the other. I mean, if you have a really bad problem, you know, you might want to go for the, some of the right. paid ones. But for most higher. consumers, at least for them to know that there yeah. are some free products out there. Yeah, and Microsoft has, their Microsoft's product is free now, too, built into the software, Right, too. and I have that as well. So you're right. There yeah. are At least there are products now that are, are fairly user-friendly. Because if I can do those, you know, they're pretty user-friendly. I mean, they pretty much tell you what, you, what to do is kind of lead you through the steps. So, 
So that's good, too. So so that's one thing that when I was going to ask you what people should do, they, they should be running their anti-spam. Yeah, no, that's the main thing you can do today. I mean, if you're talking about consumer steps that they can take, running anti-spyware software is the best way to protect against uh, spyware. Um, the, uh, I mean, the, the, the other things you can do, I mean, as an in- individual, most of the other things that, that we do other than promoting anti-spyware software are more about law enforcement and working with the companies. But as a user, you really have to know, I mean, you have to learn more about how your machine runs and what's running on your machine and taking care of it um, to really And that's really yourself. hard for consumers, it's, Ari. It's, imp- it's almost impossible. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's, I mean, you know, we, uh, I have problems with my computer <laughs> on a regular basis, yeah. too. It's not like um, uh, it's an easy thing to do. Um, so, you know, th- th- that's why really the anti-spyware software is, is, is the best bet. Now, let me tell you a story about another uh, uh, woman that we had recently on our show, and this is pretty horrible, but she talked about business identity theft where someone who worked for her who had access to, like, her passwords, et cetera, was able to send from the East Coast to the West Coast, send keylogging software and all sorts of other things. And long story short, not only did this woman steal money from her account because she was able to capture her keystrokes and see what her passwords were for her bank. And then she took money out of this uh, businesswoman's account and sent it to Los Angeles Bank, which then sent it to um, Egypt, right? Remember, it was to Egypt. And also got in and destroyed her business just by using spyware and, um, and hacked into her her stuff, even though she had hacker safe and all this stuff on her, yeah, on yeah. her, on her spyware, and and told us this horror story, and law enforcement wouldn't help her, FBI wouldn't help her. Now the Homeland Security has gotten into it because there are some real questions about was this money going possibly for terrorists or whatever. But this is real terrifying stuff. Let's talk about these now the the bad guys that aren't commercial. Uh, spyware, but the other kind of spyware that can destroy your business or your life. No, this is uh, this is the kind that's growing. It's spyware that's growing, and it's uh, it's much scarier. Um, you know, part of it is used for identity theft, and part of it is used for for uh, you know for businesses. For money. <laughs> yeah, businesses fighting each other. Um, so, right. I mean, almost all this has to do with money in some way or another. Um, right. That's one thing. You know, that old hacker myth about. Uh, you know, Matthew, Matthew Broderick and war games. Um, right. That used to be the case at one point when young kids were the people that would hack around. Now uh, a lot of the hacking that we see today is uh, financially motivated. I know. Um, we, we had uh, Kevin Mitnick on our show recently. Uh, and, we, right. you know, I had read both of his books, The Art of Intrusion, The Art of Deception. And it was actually a really interesting interview. But, you know, he really wasn't doing it for the money. He was doing it for the kicks. And, uh, and a lot of his friends were doing it for the kicks, obviously. Yeah, but I think if you ask him now, he'll tell you a lot of people are in it for the money. Oh, exactly. So. That's exactly what he told us. It's totally different now. So, so what do we do about this kind of scary stuff? So we, um, uh, it's this is harder because the, a lot of these are kind of, uh, you know, made programs are made up for just a short period of time. They're just made for one kind of detection. You know, even to get into one specific company or ten specific companies that we've seen in some of the larger, some even some of the larger cases. You know, even twenty cases, twenty twenty companies. Some a guy can get uh, make over make millions of dollars if they get into the right companies at the right places. So, right. Um, really, what 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 we've seen is a, really a growth of um, uh, to, to combat this is a growth of um, efforts to 
find, look for behaviors that are questionable from, from software. So and, and most anti, as I was saying before, most anti-spyware and antivirus products look for the look look at a code on the software. They try and come up with a way of detecting software and then uh, giving it some kind of uh, um, configura- configuration and then uh, um, a de- what they call a definition. Right. And then you, for each piece of software, and then you download that definition list and you compare it to the software that's on your computer. And if you get any matches, then you know that you have a virus or a um, or spyware or something. Yeah, now, so, so you, you have to be running this thing every night, and you have to be updating it, what, every Tuesday right, or something? But e- yeah, I mean, you have to update it all the time. But, uh, yeah. e- but even in those cases, they can't get at the soft software that's, that's only aimed at 10 companies. Right. Right, they're looking for things that are much broader based. So what, what, what there has been instead is behavior-based detection, where they're looking for software that does certain things. So if it writes to the registry without um, through through strange processes, or if it um, you know if it's looking uh, f- through files on a regular basis for a certain c- for social security numbers or something like that, right. you know, trying to figure out what the behaviors are that um, this this more insidious type of spyware um, uh, is doing, and uh, by finding uh, those behaviors, then they can do. They can, it can run all the time and protect you based on that. Now, this is only really starting to, this field of looking for behaviors is only starting to grow, but there are some companies that are more active, a company called Sana Security, um, and some others that are, are doing more work in that area. I think that is really where we're looking to to try and uh, build protections in this area. Um, in, in, in response, I mean, some companies, like the Department of Defense, just has very, very strict rules about what you can install on the computer. Right. And um, they just, just don't let you install it. just will not let you install anything on the computer but without But what if permission. you have a dirty insider, okay? And, and I've read different articles that say up to, you know, 60 to 70% of intrusions are really not intrusions from outsiders. They're insiders. Well, that's, I mean, that's, uh, that's go- going to be a problem. But, I mean, it's, it should still identify the behaviors, right? The, the, this kind of software should still identify the behaviors in that case. And if, or if you take the more extreme approach of just not allowing anything to be installed, unless it's the systems administrator and the systems administrator's boss that are the insiders, right? Um, you're, uh, they're, 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 they should be there to protect. You should have a security chief security officer that's there to work with them and protect and, and detect it. But Ari, you know what? How many businesses in this country are small to medium-sized businesses? Not everybody is, you know, Microsoft or Costco or. You know, these Absolutely. big companies. No, a, I mean, for someone concern. like me, you know, I'm a small business person, and, and I have a lot of clients that are basically small businesses that are really susceptible. They, they don't have that kind of IT administrator. You know, what, what do we do? When, what is, I don't know, what percentage of, of our country is made up of small to medium-sized yeah. business? What I mean, do we good, do? The good news is you're slightly less susceptible to insider attack, but, I mean, the the... Because you you would have interactions with the people that work for you rather than uh, having you know thousands and thousands of people coming in contractors et cetera. Right. Um, but uh, I do think that uh, it's I mean it's a major problem. It's a major concern, and there's no great answer to it. And I do think you know you're you're thinking about the small medium sized company uh, concern for in that way. But there's also people concerned about you know the the homeland Trade security, secrets? the oh. terrorism stuff. Oh yeah. Concerns for you know, the, 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 
some of the things that control the critical infrastructures aren't that big business, aren't huge businesses, right? Yeah. Some, of them, some of them are, but some of them are only, you know, 50 employees, 60 employees in the right part of the country. So Right, right. Are you talking about, like, utility companies? Yeah, or, you know, drinking water, things like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. And so some of that has been raised, you know, well, if, if we can get in and get the information, get the passwords to this information, and we see that it's happening in these identity theft cases, what's going to happen if someone can get into the, to these other kinds of uh, um, these other kinds of cases, and I think people, I think it's right to raise it. I mean, I don't think it's a um, uh, concern that something that's going to happen tomorrow, but I do think that we need to start addressing these issues on a more whole scale and thinking them of them that way. Now, does your anti-spyware coalition also deal with the criminal aspects of of uh, spyware? We do. I mean, we, we you know we we have in our group we have the National Center for Victims of Crime. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Which is a um, uh, yeah, you know, I know. Well, I'm actually a consultant for them. Right. So they do great work on on uh, getting where training law enforcement officers, and I think they brought some of the anti-spyware companies and had them work together with some of the law enforcement officers. So we've had um, pretty good success there. The National Network to End Domestic Violence has done a lot of work. Uh, is a member of the coalition has been very active, uh, and even actually brought in some domestic violence victims that have been stalked through their computer usage yeah. uh, by their uh, husband or, uh, you know, ex, ex-husband. Or ex-employee. This is what happened to our, our this woman that we had on our show. Right, victim. right. Yeah, an ex-employee. another example. Yeah. But, um, so that, those are, um, so we do raise those issues a lot, and I think we've tried to do some education between um, the people that see the victims and the people that build the software to try and figure out ways to go about addressing the issues. Yeah. It's, it's hard, though. I mean, if you're is. a stalking victim um, and you even have something on your computer that shows that it's, you know, that that uh, that's trying to detect for you, that can be a sign for someone to come and, you know, say, oh, well, I have to come and, uh, and get this person now, right? Which is, right. that's what some of the domestic violence trainers tell us. So I think that, you know, it's hard to come up with the right answers um, in these questions, but um, you know, we're having a session coming up where we're bringing together law enforcement and and some of the activists in this space um, and the, and the soft, and the people that build the software to look into the forensics and how the forensics done on spyware, so that um, we can do a better job of uh, helping to work with law enforcement. Uh, to get them to recognize some of the issues that, that we're seeing and also understanding how they work and their forensic work. So we're looking forward to that. I know. What we've talked about in this other show was like, you know, if you're going to hire, like, uh, people hire people that they don't know, you know, on the Internet. They hire consultants from across the country to do things and maybe web design for them. So, you know, there seems to be some way of ha- this whole issue of how do we know who we're really working with, like that New York Times or that New York Magazine <laughs> Uh, cartoon where the two dogs are sitting there saying on, on the internet they don't know I'm a dog you know right. we don't know who we're dealing with that's that's a huge issue right yeah no absolutely and I, mean, I think we're, we're you know we, we work on both sides of that identity issue of um, you know trying to figure out how people can stay uh, anonymous for to, for to speak politically and to engage with people when when they want when they should be anonymous but yet they're identified when they should be identified when they're engaging right. in a transaction where it's like the uh, two sides of the coin. The yeah, yeah, absolutely, and I think it's hard. And um, you know, and, we, and, and I think in, right now the internet um, has both sides of that same coin as well. You know, we talk about how people are always anonymous, but then again, we talk about how people are always tracked. Right. Right. <laughs> and in some ways, it's this is the golden age of wiretapping. Right. I mean, they have all the information about where you are, and, yeah. but sometimes it doesn't do them any good. 
no. right? Because there's a there's a break somewhere in the path, et cetera. So um, there's uh, I think it's just as you you said you compared it to Wild West. I think we're still learning about how to come up with the um, the right rules for getting to the the balance that w- that we want to have as a society. We're speaking with Ari Schwartz, who's the associate director. He is who is the director for the Center for Democracy and Technology. And we're talking about all sorts of privacy issues, and Ari testifies in Congress and has his, he really has the pulse of what's going on in D.C. So I want to ask you this question. We have been, you know, we've had major uh, increase in data breaches. We've we've also had the California law that we created out here in the West uh, to, that really set the standard to be, to at least in the beginning for a security breach. Where are we now with federal efforts to develop a security breach law? Well, uh, right now, it's, I mean, that, that issue is uh, really a, uh, a hot one in, in terms of how the states are developing their uh, data breach laws. And, in fact, um, I think that a lot of people at the federal level, a lot of the advocates at the federal level say they'd rather not see a federal law because they're right. afraid of what's gonna, what it's going to look like and then it would preempt California's good law and some other states' good laws. Um, and we've seen a lot of preemption against our California laws and a lot of, a lot of different types of issues. Now, the only reason that the industry is interested in the federal law is to preempt the state laws. I mean, that, right. that's, that's clear. And, and a lot of the companies actually are now saying, well, we've learned to live with the state laws. We're afraid of what protections might be built in on the other side, what consumer protections might be built in. So there's a lot of, right now, I think there's a lot of uh, inertia around the idea of getting a federal law, which is um, in some ways too bad because it would be easier to do education around, well, you know, what is the, when should you be notified, what should you look for, how do you do credit freeze, but it's right now that's different state by state. Yeah, and and you know my my own opinion is is that if you're going to have federal legislation, at least bring it to the to the best standard, you know, or the standard that that's, that's, that's been well, working the best. It's, it's, it's our uh, issue as well. I mean, I think our we we want to see that it's a um, it's got to be a standard that works for consumers. I mean it. Uh, you know, I think there could be several best standards. Pick one of them. Yeah, right. yeah. Well, and everybody, you know, I talk to people across the country, and the lawyers who deal with the, the California security breach law, and they all say on the side, even if they're, you know, defending their own companies, they all say, you know what, this was a major piece of legislation. It works. Don't Why, why try and create something that doesn't work when we know this works already? That's right. I think that uh, that's the viewpoint. I mean, the one thing that was really just great about the California legislation was, this has been going on for years and years, and yet we only found out about it because of the California legislation. Exactly. And so we don't want to mess with that success that we have, that now people are to have to confront this problem right. um, of data breach because we know that it ha- because of the transparency. And, and, you know, and we've given them the, you know, uh, the opportunity to not have to disclose if they encrypt and they do, you know, take some action to uh, at least protect that technology, you know? Absolutely, and I think that encryption is an important step that people can take. Um, yeah, you know, some some technologists say, well, we, if we limit it to only encryption, but um, well, then prove that your standard works as well. And I'm sure that, uh, that they'll take a look at it as well. I know that Joanne McNabb at the you know the California yeah, John, uh, Privacy uh-huh. Office, it will uh, John McNabb will will uh, has uh, done a lot of work in this area. Will take a look at it if you go and you tell her you you have a new technology. So I think that uh, there's an openness there and. Um, California's shown that kind of openness, and I think that um, we can have that nationally as well, but um, we're not going to in the near future. So. Right. The only thing that we were going to go back and do to that law is to say that y- that you don't have to disclose if you encrypt 
unless unless you find out that an unscrupulous employee had the key to decrypt. Right. That was going to be the one thing that we wanted to add, but we were afraid to, you know, mess don't with mess it with too much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Leave well enough alone. We don't have a lot of time, but I know I am really concerned about medical privacy, and you started to bring that up. So so what's going to happen? I mean, if, if all of our medical information is in a central place because of Katrina or because of some earthquake or tsunami or something, I mean, that's the good side of it. What about protection for medical privacy? Well, I, I think that there are a lot of the concerns uh, uh, about medical privacy is that we passed this law that um, health information uh, portability and uh, um, and assurance act um, and the idea was to try and make it so that uh, we could get information uh, around in electronic form trying to start to save some uh, money that it can that the, that the information about the patient followed the patient um, and uh, the problem is that it left a lot of people that are now moving into this space uncovered. It did it based on the, the, the type of person that had information rather than the type of information that they had. And, um, uh, and so now we're talking about who is going to run these databases. And it's not probably not going to be one national database, but it's going to be systems and, and different kinds of standards that interact together. And when it's held by an insurance company or a... Um, uh, healthcare organization has different standards, but if it's held by a third party or employer, let's say, right. um, they may not be protect- they may not be covered by this law at all, or by the privacy law at all. So um, we need to um, really figure out what the standards should be for these new players in this space, and make sure that and when they have our health information, that it has uh, strong protections. I mean, we don't even think that the current standards are strong enough, but uh, at least they cover someone. You know, California recently passed a law that became effective this year that if your medical privacy information is lost or breached, that you have to disclose, which is the first state that's done that, as opposed to financial stuff. You know what I mean? Right. Like the Social Security number. Now, if, if my medical information has been disclosed, then um, then you have to let me know as well. So. We're, you know, California kind of sets some standards there that, that I think has really helped the entire country. So I, I you know. Absolutely. I think California has been the standard bearer in the privacy space. So you got to come out and visit us. Yeah, I do. I do. <laughs> I'll be out there sometime this year, I'm sure. So. Well, you will tell us. Lloyd tells me that it is time to end. We could have gone on forever. Are you, will you come back on soon? One, sure, sure. Let me know. Okay, you are terrific, and we thank you so much for joining us, and uh, you stay warm out there, okay? Thanks. Thanks a lot. Okay, bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, host of Privacy Piracy. Thank you so much, Lloyd. And visit our website to see our previous guests, listen to our archived interviews, download podcasts, and see who's coming up on our interviews. Uh, Join us every Wednesday night from 5 to 6 p.m. Thank you, and good night. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.